today on the podcast, we have Miles Randall from Team. And I'll let Miles talk about himself and explain what Team is as part of the podcast. It's uh, good to have you on here, Miles. Thanks for having me, and uh, hello to everyone that's listening out there. Um, as described, my name is Miles. I'm the president of Team Aeromedical. Um, I've got a fairly interesting background. Uh, comes from 31 years of search and rescue. Uh, 26 years now being a paramedic and 18 years of being a pro ski patroller. So I kind of bounced around emergency services for, for 31 years um, and learned a bunch of different things from those various experiences. I'm an advanced life support paramedic. Um, and currently my role as president allows me to spend most of my time on a computer and some of my time uh, in the in the aircraft, either on a helicopter or uh, we do a little bit of fixed wing work as well. Um, so it's uh, it's always something kind of interesting on the go. Team Aeromedical. All right. Sorry, just to interrupt there. Um, you say Ski Patrol, SAR, and ALS paramedic for all combination there in around the 2025 year mark. Um, yeah. How much change have you seen in the industry, which I think is going to lead into a little bit more about team in those 25 years? It's uh, it's quite fascinating to see the change for sure. Um, when it comes to, uh, for example, paramedic scope of practice, it's it's ballooning in BC, but we're playing catch up with some other places. Um, and when it comes to the field of, of wilderness medicine, for example, um, it's always been something that happened, but nobody really talked about it or supported it. And these days, there's uh, you know the wilderness. Medical Association of Canada, there's um, our Canadian Association of Wilderness Medicine, I should say. Um, and then there's uh, a move on with the International Board of Specialty Certificates to actually have a recognized international standard for wilderness paramedics. And I think that's in my field, that's one of the most exciting things I've seen in 30 years is that wilderness medicine is actually now becoming a recognized specialty. Sorry, I just wanted to kind of intervene on that little topic because there's going to be folks from around the world listening to this. So they're probably listening going, why aren't paramedics just getting on paramedic helicopters and doing this? So I wanted a little background, but sorry to interrupt, carry on with the uh, concept with team. Yeah, it's all, it's all good. Um, so it is an interesting question. Why aren't paramedics just jumping on helicopters and, and going out and going into the places that, that we, uh, we respond to? And uh, it all comes down to training and capability. Um, the example I'll give is on, on your, your standard air ambulance helicopter, you've got extremely capable and experienced medical practitioners, but uh, they may or may not have the training and capability to safely operate in the environments that a helicopter can take them to, um, or even land in some of the places that, that we, will, uh, we will see a patient. So, so the example I'll give is, um, we recently did a, a helicopter hoist off a local mountain peak for a, a patient with a broken leg. There's no possible way that we could land a helicopter there. Uh, and to extricate the patient requires some mountain rescue skill and capability. And so in our program, I was actually on, on the line for that one. I uh, got hoisted close to the patient in, in some fairly technical terrain, uh, treated the patient, took his pain away with some medications, uh, packaged him, and then hoisted him back up and into the aircraft directly for a trip to the hospital. 
a typical air ambulance crew wouldn't be able to get close to that patient. And so that would require uh, a few other agencies as well as a lot more time to get the patient to uh, the most appropriate hospital. And so our program kind of fills a gap that uh, has been existing in BC since, uh, well, forever really until our program started. Okay. Thanks for that little bit of background. Like I said, it's uh, with the listeners around the world, as you've probably traveled and done some research, there's different models and uh, methods to do this in different locations. So there might be that question about just off the top, but I'll let you carry on with what is team then? Well, I wouldn't mind backtracking a little bit and sure. saying, yeah, for, for the listeners around the world, um, we when we discovered that there was this gap in pre-hospital care in BC, we, we went to various locations in the world to, to learn how they were doing it. Um, in particular, we went to Switzerland because uh, the Swiss are incredibly dialed. And uh, we learned from the folks at Air Zermatt, Air Glacier, and Rega. And at the time we were there, it was 2017. It was their 50th anniversary at Air Zermatt. So it goes to show that we're more than 50 years behind the Swiss. Um, we've also learned from the Aussies, and we've learned from uh, the Kiwis over in New Zealand. And again, we're about 50 years behind them when it comes to wilderness medicine or austere medicine. So we uh, determined to learn everything we could from them, as well as focus it on the type of uh, scenes and the type of patient base that we would be seeing here. And it's it's crazy. I mean, just as a bit of a tangent, but when you talk about being 50 years behind the Swiss and the Swiss have a great program there, there's no doubt about it the area they operate is like the size of one of our mountain ranges in this province out of like five. <laughs> yep. It's crazy that it's taken us that long to get to this level, but uh, yeah, good on you for going around and taking a look at that. It definitely, it came from an interesting place. Um, Jordan Lawrence, our, our vice president and I, we were working for the provincial ambulance service one night in 2014 when we were sent to a cardiac arrest on the mountains. Uh, we weren't allowed to go up the trail and so the patient was supposed to be brought to us and unfortunately it, it turns out that it was our station chief our uh, search and rescue team leader and friend of 20 years um, and by the time he was brought to us there was uh, unfortunately no chance of resuscitation in uh, april and ironically april fool's day of the same year 2014 uh, as a search and rescue volunteer i got sent to 24-year-old female in cardiac arrest just outside of Squamish in the mountains. And she'd been in a tree well for seven hours. Uh, and at the time we arrived, had been in cardiac arrest for two hours with bystander CPR ongoing. All told, we did uh, four and a half hours of CPR and resuscitative efforts. And we technically temporarily rewrote the rule book, let's put it that way. Uh, to be able to get her to a place where she could get specialty care. And as a result, she made a complete recovery. And that's why we realized that we needed to build the program is that, you know, there was a huge gap and the current uh, rules, regulations and, and limitations wouldn't have allowed us to get that patient to the type of care she needed that made that complete recovery. Um, and so we built our program based on that. Um, that particular call that you're talking about, is that available on YouTube or anything? I know you've delivered uh, presentations on that, like uh, Canadian Wilderness Medicine and that sort of thing. Is there a place where viewers could actually go you know, listen to that particular event? Because that's quite the event. I mean, if you're into backcountry wilderness medicine 
prolonged field care, that kind of thing. That's definitely something to listen to. Yeah, I haven't put it on YouTube, but it's a good idea. And maybe I'll do that in the, in the days to come because I've had a lot of requests. Like I've done presentations kind of all over North America about it, including last weekend um, at Canadian Association for Wilderness Medicine. Um, but yeah, to be able to give that knowledge base to a, a broader audience is a great idea. Yeah. And if you do let me know, I mean, I'd be happy to post it up on our social media links. I found it quite interesting, quite useful um, from even the lower level practitioner that I deal as. But uh, yeah, it's definitely good knowledge. Awesome. I think um, you know, the, the conference, the Canadian Association for Wilderness Medicine this weekend, anyone that, that uh, was watching the conference online or were at the conference will have access to that. But I'll yeah, it should be up for a year, I believe, on those. Yeah. So for any listeners, Canadian Association of Wilderness Medicine, it's a conference. Um, if you belong to a SAR group, emergency pre-hospital care type thing, I think it's 40 bucks and you get a year access to all of the uh, information, all the presentations. I could be out with the numbers slightly, but it sounds like I remember something like that. Um, all right, uh, back into team then. <laughs> Yeah, so Team's an interesting program. It's an it's a not-for-profit. Uh, we've got bases in Squamish, which is our primary base, and our mountain rescue base. Uh, we've got a base in Campbell River, which is our newest base, a base in Prince George, and a base in Fort St. John as well. And then we've got a couple extra bases planned. Um, hopefully by uh, September 2023, we'll announce our next base. Okay, just to intervene really quickly, could you give the listener, so all these bases are in the province of British Columbia, Canada. What's the distance between, for instance, Prince George and Squamish by air, by flight time? By flight time, it's about a two hour flight by helicopter for us to get from Squamish to Prince George. Just so that people have an idea of the range that we're talking about here. Yeah, it's interesting when, when we talk to some helicopter companies at the start of this adventure, um, Usually the answer we got was helicopters don't do that. Helicopters do short hops. They don't fly long legs, two hours. Um, and we've kind of changed that a lot. And I, all of my search and rescue missions were pretty quick for the most part in the air. Um, half hour flight was a long flight. We can routinely fly sort of a quarter or a third of the way across the province. Uh, and we have no issues with landing and refueling and continuing the flight, which we've done a few times. Uh, because what even though our transport time may be longer to the scene or to back to the hospital, the difference is we're cutting at least hours, if not days off time to definitive care. So we're gonna bring paramedics, nurses, and doctors to the scene. You know, we can perform critical care medicine or advanced life support medicine, uh, reinflate a pneumothorax, you know, place a surgical airway, um, you know, give antibiotics for for uh, open fractures, different things like that. Um, and then we'll transport direct to the most appropriate hospital, which on our first mission, uh, it saw us do the mission in about an hour and 40 minutes as opposed to 14 hours. Um, let's, let's back up a little bit more. So team was... Uh, you said you started around in 2017 looking at the concept. When did you actually get off the ground, <laughs> no pun intended, in British Columbia with it? 2018 was our, our first mission. 
Okay. And you said it's a not-for-profit. So can you explain what that means? We started the program uh, in memory of our friend um, and to fill the gap in, in pre-hospital care. And we had no intention of making money off it. And you know, there really isn't any way to make money off this. Uh, but we do believe that our staff deserve to be paid. Um, if you're, you know, for example, we've got a um, a critical care physician that's about to launch on a on an overseas mission. Um, if we take him away from his hospital shifts, he shouldn't be out of pocket for um, the time that he's working for us. And so we do pay our staff. Um, we don't have the budget to be able to pay a physician what they normally earn at the hospital, but uh, but we pay them what we can. Um, so yeah, we're not for profit that's focused on patient care, but we do have bills that we have to pay. So there is the operational side um, and the costs involved are covered by the operational side. Okay. So what does um, an average mission, garden variety mission or, you know, client relationship with team look like? Like how does that roll out? So it's a little bit based on uh, what we've learned from the Swiss and the Kiwis and Australians in the sense that they have a membership program. Um, so the membership program for them covers the cost of admissions as well. For us, we don't have the big population base that say the Swiss do. And so it's spread out a lot more. So we've got a bit of a combination of membership, which gives access to our program, and then insurance plans or membership benefits that cover the cost of admissions. Okay, so sort of like an international SOS, but on a smaller scale perhaps? Yeah, something like that, for sure. There, We do an interesting um, thing on, on the side as well, which isn't covered by those costs. So the example, we've got a, um, a mission coming up in a few days that is uh, international repatriation where we'll fly to 22-hour flight to a fairly remote country to bring someone back that's critically injured overseas. Uh, and that doesn't get covered by those insurance costs. That's something quite a bit different. No, understandable. Um, and since you started, you said that you've added some bases, the latest one being Campbell River, if I remember correctly. So I take it the model is successful. The, the need for this is growing. It is. I think the need for it was always there, um, but people are so much more aware of what we're doing now. And so the support is growing for sure. Okay. And so what does, uh, like I said, a garden variety mission look like? Like how does it get called in and, you know, what's the response time? What are the resources look like for something like that? So when you phone us, you call our, our air ops coordinator number. Um, it's an emergency number that only our, our members or our tasking agencies have. Uh, there's 15 people waiting to pick up the phone. And you can either phone us direct, text us, or set up your satellite device to contact us. And so we'll immediately uh, put a crew on standby, dependent on where the location is. Lately, we've had a few that have been sort of halfway between Campbell River and Squamish. And so we, we stage both crews and then decide which has the better weather and the best run at it. Our crews are on a 15-minute launch window. So uh, right now I'm... You know, I'm at home in Squamish, but I'm 10 minutes away from the airport, so I can be at, at the aircraft in 15 minutes quite easily. And uh, so 
will determine. So the last mission that we uh, we launched out of Squamish that I was on, um, we realized that we needed to do a, a hoist. It was a I wouldn't say a high and hot hoist, but it was it was a hoist where we had to have a specific aircraft type that could operate at that altitude and had enough space to bring in the staff that we needed to bring in. We had two mountain rescue trained medics on that that uh, that mission, and so we launched with uh, a Bell 212 helicopter that's hoist equipped. Uh, we had dual pilots and a hoist operator, and uh, we were kind of overhead of the scene within about 40 minutes of of uh, being tasked out to uh, to respond. Okay, and now you had mentioned there are different platforms, so I take it. Uh, you have relationships with different helicopter companies, so you could have a multitude of platforms. Is it predominantly hoist, or is it land and load? Is it long line? Is it a combination of all of those things? It's kind of all of the above. Um, so currently, we don't have any dedicated helicopters. That's about to change. There is a core funding model coming up that will hopefully pay for a dedicated machine at every base and, and paid staff to be there for day shifts. Um, but right now I'll, I'll, uh, if, if I pick up the phone as an air ops coordinator, I'll figure out which aircraft is the most appropriate. Um, the example is if we know that we've got to do a hoist, uh, we know that we also want to land at, I don't know, a hospital rooftop like Vancouver general, then we'll ask for an aircraft that's, that's capable and legally allowed to do that. Um, the EC-135 from, from uh, Airbus is uh, one of the ones that we like the most that's available out of Blackburn helicopters really capable aircraft tiny bit small for what we do um but it allows us to do everything that we need to do okay and so uh your staff you'd mentioned there are a couple of medics that were mountain rescue trained so what kind of training do the members on your team have or need to have in order to be part of that team you say you're opening up new bases obviously you probably get flooded with applications before people listen to this and go hey i'm going to send miles an email and tell them how great i am what exactly are you looking for on that kind of thing so we want to um we had a comment from from one of our earliest missions wow these guys show up in in uh work boots and work clothes not flight suits and loafers um, and that's kind of the, the medics that we're looking for. We've got, um, you know, for example, um, there's myself with 31 years of SAR, mountain rescue, swift water rescue, helicopter rescue, and, and all those other various disciplines. Um, we've got, you know, a critical care physician who's a flight surgeon in the military, works for CMERT, the uh, military emergency response team, uh, medical response team. Um, most of our doctors are ski patrollers as well. We kind of want to have people that can not only provide advanced life support or critical care medicine in the field, but also be able to repel, um, you know, build an anchor, use an ice axe and crampon safely, uh, do an auto extrication, um, or do a swift water rescue. And so we look for people with that kind of background. The medical skills are, are key for our medics and when we talk about medics we're including paramedics so primary care paramedics with a rescue background advanced care paramedics and critical care paramedics our nurses are either emerge or critical care nurses and then our physicians are either emerge physicians uh, critical care physicians or anesthesiologists 
we do always have a rescue specialist as well. And so the rescue specialist in the Squamish base is typically a mountain guide that we have on call that can jump in the aircraft with us or train with us. And at the other bases uh, where mountain guides are a little bit more scarce, we've got rescue specialists with uh, uh, fire, uh, search and rescue, and military backgrounds. That makes sense. Um, I guess, you know, and, and answer this question any way you wish. Canada is not a socialist country, but we're compared to the United States more socialist than they are, less socialist perhaps than Europe where a lot of this like SAR pre-hospital care is covered under a national health service or a government system. How has it been basically going, I don't wanna say it's the capitalist market, but it's more of a uh, non-government intervening kind of uh, system that you're running than what Canadians might be primarily used to or, you know, accustomed to seeing. Has that been a challenge? It has for sure. There is a misunderstanding out there. Some people think we're, um, you know, an attempt to privatize healthcare. We've had, uh, you know, the uh, the financial side of things pointed out to us quite a few times as being glaringly different than the public system that, that we rely on. Um, and I, I think we're incredibly fortunate to have a public system. The, the public healthcare system is fantastic when it's not overwhelmed. Um, what what we or where we fit into it is that there there just is no wilderness emergency medical services agency in Canada, uh, and we are not government funded. We we did get some funding from Strathcona Regional District, and we really appreciate that support. Um, but at least up until this point, we've had no support from from other governments, and so there is a financial side to what we do for sure. Um, because we have to pay the helicopter bills and we've got to pay wages. But aside from the funding sources, there's really no difference. Like money exchanges hands. Uh, similarly, if you're talking about BC Ambulance Service or a volunteer search and rescue team, the helicopter bills still get paid, the pilots still get paid, um, and wages do get paid for you know, professional uh, ambulance staff or uh, firefighters or other things like that. So that's that's about the only difference really is where the funding comes from. What's interesting about our, our program is early on, sort of two weeks after we started our program, we learned about the BC Forest Safety Ombudsman report into helicopter EMS in, in uh, BC and realized that the forest sector really needed the kind of program that we were actually building. And so we've been able to prove with uh, the medical economics side of things that, for example, our, our first mission where we uh, we flew to the north end of Harrison Lake for a logger with a spinal injury and a pneumothorax and a few other injuries like that, who would have been a 14-hour transport to a trauma center. We got him there with advanced care in an hour and 40 minutes. Um, and the neurosurgeon was quite convinced that he was only able to um, recover well post-surgery because of the combination of advanced care and transport direct to a neurosurgeon as opposed to bouncing him down a, a logging road for eight hours um, and then all the all the things that come along with it. So he credited our program with with allowing this guy to get to neurosurgery in a in a state that allowed them to uh, repair the damage and he walked out of hospital. The financial side of that was that the uh, the bill to his employer was four thousand five hundred and twenty dollars for our services. 
and we saved the healthcare system and WorkSafe BC $9 million. That, that's a pretty good return on investment. Yeah, for sure. You can't argue with that. Um, there's no, studies no. out in Australia, the head injury retrieval trial, that shows that with a service like ours, and, and albeit that service was very focused only on traumatic brain injuries, but they've shown that with traumatic brain injuries, a service like ours reduces cost to patient by 4.3 million Australian dollars. And more importantly, shows a dramatic improvement in patient outcomes. Well, that's interesting to have some of that science-based approach. And it, you said something that I clued into there. When you listen to what the military does in regards to its patient care about quick access to life-saving techniques and the field, quick access to transport, quick access to, you know, roll two, roll three kind of hospitals. There's so much from the wars that we are now bringing into street medicine. Uh, as you say, they're changing the scope of pretty much every level of paramedic in BC. Uh, and some of that, I think, is directly attributed to, call it real-world field trials for the last 20 years. And part of Absolutely. that, quick, quick access to you know, superior care um, is what you basically just stated in that particular call with that log logger, is getting yeah. them to someone who can fix them. Absolutely. Um, now, you said uh, your first call you had, um, and you've just talked about a couple others. What is the, how busy are you? Like, what is the tempo for your services at this point? Right now, it's a bit of a slow tempo. Um, I'd have to look at the, at the logs out of the Squamish base. I think we've, we've done about 12 missions this year. Um, every year, it increases. But uh, what we see, yeah, we're not, we're not incredibly busy, but the impact that we're making with every patient is huge. So it's a life and limb threat. Always, we're not going for minor injuries. Um, and so every patient that we see, you know, we've seen um, end stemmies, so, you know, heart attacks. Uh, we've seen pulmonary embolisms. We've seen um, aneurysms. We've seen major traumas. So all of these conditions are major life and limb threats. So even though we're a little on the quieter side for mission volume, the impact is huge. Right on. Now, where is kind of going to be a three-part question here. You can answer it part by part. Where do you see the organization going in the future in regards to geographically, in regards to service model, and in regards to interoperability? So just kind of three questions in there. So geographically we've we had a five base plan to cover the the bulk of the province we have had requests from some communities to put bases um for example in fort st john that wasn't part of our plan and we've added that um so now now currently we have a seven base plan to cover the province um we're currently we can reach anywhere in the province uh with a refueling stop but it's obviously better if we've got an aircraft that's close by to say the, the Northwest or the Southeast, which is the two zones that we don't currently easily cover. Um, so there is a plan with our core funding model to cover those areas as well. Um, so hopefully in the next short uh, bit of time, we'll, we'll be able to move forward with that funding model. The other questions, can you hit me again with them? Um, uh, the last part of it was interoperability with other agencies. How do you, like in the future, what does that look like? Is there steps being made in that regard? 
Yeah, so we're we're always in contact with other agencies. And the example I'll give is if if we were to launch a mission right now, we would phone uh, BC Ambulance Service, for example, and say, hey, we're responding to this area just to let you know. Um, and then discuss. We, we usually meet uh, a BC Ambulance crew somewhere along the way, if it's at a hospital rooftop or somewhere. Um, we've got quite a good relationship building with uh, JRCC and so military search and rescue. And in fact, um, that was a big part of our weekend in, in Canmore with the Canadian Association of Wilderness Medicine Conferences, uh, sort of training with those guys a little bit and, and uh, getting to know each other. Um, we've got a, a few retired SARTEX on our program too, which helps us with that. Um, we're building a good relationship, especially in the north with the RCMP, um, and we are in discussions about a tactical program up there for tactical medicine. Um, and then when it comes to SAR teams, um, it's it's a bit political for sure with SAR teams, but but people are starting to see that we're we're not a um, a model that's that's trying to take over search and rescue. We're a wilderness uh, ambulance service, and so we're an asset, and uh, and we can provide that medical support and transport um, to SAR teams as well, whether it's for their um, for their subjects that they're rescuing or searching for, or even their own members if they get, uh, you know, for example, heat exhaustion or um, injured on a on a task. So we're getting there. Um, I think anything new in, in BC is a challenge, but we're now coming up on, you know, year five and uh, people are starting to realize that we're, we're 100% patient focused um, and, as the as the name shows you, we're we're a team based collaborative organization. Right on. And the last part of that three part question was, where do you see some of the training and skills moving in the future? I mean, you've mentioned the possibility of tactical medicine. Obviously, that has some slightly different parameters around it. Not so much on the medicine end, but uh, on the you know the left and right of arc of that. But uh, the skill based uh, training, do you see that moving forward at any? point in time with your organization yep absolutely um all of our our core um training modules are key to us i think uh you know areas like auto extrication for example that's something that's a a skill that forever needs to be practiced and built on um mountain rescue as well hoist uh for example we've got a um a crew training right now up in in uh at the whistler black home helicopters base just doing um some dry land hoist training. So that's something that we have to train in quarterly. Um, and then we're we're starting to get into uh, overwater flights out of the Campbell River base. Um, you know, for example, if we're flying up to a heli ski lodge up, up the coast. Um, so we're going to have to start involving our crew in, in more training for helicopter underwater extrication training, as well as we'll start to get into marine hoisting at some point. So the military focuses on offshore marine hoisting, um, and they're they're much better equipped than we are for offshore marine hoisting. But for cruise ships, container vessels, um, you know, private yachts and fishing boats and things like that, we'll uh, we'll have an aircraft that that can be fairly nimble and be able to either land on a on a ship or hoist off uh, with minimal rotor washing concerns like that. So we're gonna we're gonna branch into that out of the Campbell River and Squamish bases. Right on. Um, as we get towards the end, if there's something that you needed, like from the public, like you wanted to put a message out there, if you needed something, what would that be? I think um, just just uh, 
more and more public support as it builds. Uh, you know, I was just on a phone call with uh, a, a faller forester. Um, really excited about the the uh, the program that we're building in Campbell River because he's just seen so many injuries and and that kind of thing. But he's also um, on the board of of one of the local ski resorts, and he's like, "Hey, can we use you guys for for this for our backcountry fest?" Yeah, we're uh, we're here to help um, remote communities, First Nations, um, anywhere that's that's beyond the reach of traditional ambulance services. That's what we're set up to to help. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you want to add to the podcast? Anything else that we've missed during the conversation at all? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, you hit on recruiting. Uh, I think that's probably our busiest um, part of the program is, is we get, if we don't get two or three resumes a day from extremely qualified people, it's kind of an odd day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you're, if you're interested, we, we are uh, going to do some more recruiting starting in January and, uh, just, uh, email us at hr at teaam.ca, hr at teaam.ca. Um, and bear with us because it is a incredibly busy desk um and we uh, we typically do our our interviews by video conference okay um well thank you very much for coming on to this i appreciate it um obviously bumped in here and there to your organization and your services through both my you know day job and my volunteer star job you know and heard about your stuff so it's been nice to have a chat with you and i've learned a little bit more about the organization and what you can do and hopefully other people do as well i definitely appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and everyone that's listening and uh hope you enjoy the good weather before uh ski season really starts it's already started here <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're a week ahead of us it's not fair <laughs>